with chocolate treats mixed into dark chocolate ice cream, the Tillamook Chocolate Collection is a chocolate game changer because the thing that pairs best with chocolate is more chocolate. Tillamook Chocolate Collection Ice Cream. Extraordinary Dairy. And we're back. At any cost. At any cost. What is this? Is this a what if thing? It's from what if. I keep saying at any cost. Can I tell you, I I watched the trailer. Like, I pulled up my Netflix. I saw Renee Zellwinger. I thought, oh, what's she been up to? Her hair looks good. I watched the trailer, and I was like, I don't know what this is about. Like, the trailer told me nothing. You don't know what it's about from the trailer? No. Basically... You find out towards the end of the pilot, and I'm not spoiling anything because like this is the series, and they don't tell you what it is in the trailer. Um, it's Indecent Proposal, the show. Uh. So in order for um, Jane Levy, um, who was in Suburgatory, which I loved, mm-hmm. um, she has a pharmaceutical company that she's trying to keep afloat. And Renee Zellweger is incredibly wealthy. And she says that she wants one night with her husband, and then she will give her $80 million for her company. There is not a man on earth worth $80 million. (laughs) Also, this show looks like an an evil perfume commercial or something. Yes, it's Renee Zellweger staring out a lot of windows at CGI uh, San Francisco, and also CGI Lightning. It's from the creator of Revenge. Oh, okay. So there's a lot of window staring. I saw a lot of hot people looking distressed. Mm -hmm. And her husband is played by Blake Jenner. I don't know. Um, He was in Glee briefly. Right. Uh, He was also at High Tops yesterday. Oh, really? Just having a good time. That's a bar here in West Hollywood. It's a a sports bar, so straight people feel comfortable matriculating it. Um, It is. Also, it seems like this show, maybe Renee Zellweger is secretly only in one fifth of it. Yeah. So part of the problem, too, I enjoy it. It's messy. It's over the top. It could be more like you with like things actually happening each episode. It's moving kind of slowly. She seems to be in like 20 percent of each episode. No. It seems like they filmed her scenes in a block because they didn't have her for the whole time. From Cold Mountain (laughs) to Hot Mess Mountain. And then there are supporting characters and... They're kind of the worst. There's this black woman who's a doctor who's having an affair, and there is this gay couple that's trying to decide whether or not they should have a threesome. Compare the show to you. Uh, is you give you more on the uh, camp? Uh, yes, okay. yes. Um, you is at least, even if you is not, like, even, you is at least funny. Like, yeah. I found you hilarious. I don't think that was the intention right. of the show. Of the but, artist. Yes, but I found it very funny. And so at least you can take something from it. I think there were jokes in you. I oh, don't no, know I found if, the I whole, cons- yeah. I found, the she's the dumbest woman on the island of Manhattan. Oh, yes. I was like, that is what I found <laughs> funny. Uh, yeah, I, what if it's more, um, you know, if you love, like, a campy, like, nighttime soap, that's trying to be Shonda, mm. but isn't sure. Kind of rhymes. Yeah. yeah you know, <laughs> beige anatomy. <laughs> um, but speaking of messy, did y'all see what happened with Moby and Natalie Portman this week? I did. Yeah. Two people who I just 
almost never think about. I think about Natalie Portman often. I'm not, I don't, I'm certainly not like, I don't dislike her. By any means, but she's she's never been in anything that I've really loved. So I don't have a lot of I'm like, yeah, Natalie Portman. Sure. I don't feel strongly. I think among like preeminent actresses, she's like one of the ratter people. Like she's just like actually outspoken and tends to know what she's talking about. But this I mean. This pairing of people, just, you know, the famous Anya Joseph Gordon-Levitt feud, just completely <laughs> strange. Uh, I feel like I love Jackie, and I love... Like Jackie. Uh, I, I never totally got Jackie. I love Jackie, you know, but that's my Speaking of there. fancy perfume commercials masquerading as movies. <laughs> but Moby, I guess, has this book out, and... Like a he, memoir? Yeah, and he's talking about the early 90s and the late 90s, and... You know, him being a vegan or what have you. And body rock. I know, right? I also, during all of this, I like revisited some Moby songs and I was like, oh, they were good. Right. Some of them. Well, it was in, they were in every commercial ever. Yeah. Yeah. You could not stop hearing him. Uh, But he talks about how he had a relationship with Natalie Portman when she was 20 and he was older. And then she came out and was like, first of all, I was 18. Uh, you mm. could have fact checked this, and we were never in a relationship. And then he was like, "Oh no, girl! Here, I have a photo of us together somewhere." <laughs> so <laughs> clearly, we're dating. Read it and weep. Uh, then he like tripled down again on like Instagram before finally apologizing. Though his Ugh. apology had something weird in it. Did you see that he goes? Disp- he goes. He apologized. He apologized. But then at the end, he goes. I acknowledge that I should have behaved differently despite our almost 14-year age difference when, in fact, they are 16 years apart. So it's I, I don't know if that was intentional, if he's being like, I know that she's secretly older or younger than she says, older than she says. Yeah, anyway, I think it was very strange. doesn't count. Yeah, it could be. I don't know. Also, Moby, I mean, man, this ain't the hill. No. <laughs> <laughs> this. Just dating Natalie Portman. Is that a hill that you want to die Yeah, I don't, I don't think that's the one you want, man. Do you remember when Jonathan Saffron Foer Oh, my God, the wife? emails. No. Because he was in love with Natalie Portman. Oh, right, 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 right. Yes. <laughs> I actually, you would think there'd be more like memoir related issues of this type. Like, mm-hmm. you know, someone says something and they don't. Because this isn't the kind of thing where like the New York fact checker is like checking in with everybody that, you know, Angelica Houston badmouths in her new book or whatever. I feel like. But someone wrote, the thing is someone who, someone at the publishing company, like someone <laughs> should have fact checked that book. <laughs> Like whether or not like there should have been an individual yeah. before you fucking publish a book. Hey, Natalie, yeah. did this happen? How old were you? Uh, that seems like just something you could easily Some, Google. Yeah. Uh, but also, uh, I feel like a lot of those memoirs that are really juicy happen when a lot of the other people in the book are, are dead. dead. Totally. Yeah. So mm-hmm. you can really get those secrets out. You know, the sad thing now is this exact type of mix up we can't do anymore because everything is so documented. Mm-hmm. So like if they had dated now, we'd be like, well, we have the Instagram stories yeah. <laughs> of you two going to Avengers. Yeah. So can't really <laughs> lie here. We've got them DMs yeah. about what you really said. Yeah. I don't know. Anyway, can we do you think he gets into the racial politics of Southside with Gwen Stefani? Because it's on my mind sometimes. <laughs> Don't they have weapons in hand talk. as we start to drive? I mean, what's going on there? I, I doubt it. <laughs> I doubt it. Uh, we have a ridiculous show for you today. Um, it's a lot of it's a lot of Harvey Weinstein content today. 
a lot of people who were part of the Harvey clan will be brought up today. Uh, but we're going to be talking about his settlement, his $44 million settlement. We will also be talking about Quentin Tarantino, mm. former friend of Harvey Weinstein. And, you know, we'll also get into Booksmart and why people don't go to the movies anymore. We'll be joined by Kyle Buchanan of the New York Times, if you've heard of that paper. Maybe. The, the paper of record. The gray lady, yes. The yes. failing New York Times. Mm-hmm. Yes. yes. Uh, the, the lion fake news New York Times. <laughs> we will be right back. Justice is a dish best served as a very complicated legal proceeding. Last Thursday, it was announced that Harvey Weinstein, his company, and former associates had reached a tentative $44 million settlement to resolve the civil lawsuits over his sexual misconduct. The lawsuit will settle New York State's civil suit, as well as lawsuits from various women and former employees against Harvey and his company. The money from the tentative settlement would be paid out to and shared among his alleged victims, as well as creditors and company associates. Due to the nature of Weinstein's company's bankruptcy filing, Insurance companies will be paying out this settlement and not Weinstein himself. Oh, I love that. Um, A judge will either approve or disprove of these terms next week. While this portion of his legal woes are likely coming to an end, he still faces criminal charges for rape. The amount of people who are c- collecting this $44 million, it's like winning a, a day of HQ. Like, everybody wins 17 cents. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Um, it's wild because they were supposed to be getting more. You know, there was initially going to be a buyout of the Weinstein Company, um, which did not go through, um, but it would have been about... million, you know, and now they have to settle for less. And Megyn Kelly, author of Settle for More, the 2016 (laughs) memoir, would not agree with that, I'm sure. You know, it's a good, and and I have said this over and over, my complete lack of faith in any of these men, except for the small handful that will likely go to actual prison, Mm -hmm. holding any real, uh, you know, having any real accountability, because it's like, you also realize what rich people have set up to protect themselves. So the fact that they're an insurance company is paying, it's like that happens. Of course they have that. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? In the way that someone, someone less powerful than him would have been on the hook for that. Wouldn't have been able to pay it anyway, but like he could have paid the $44 million. Like, I feel like if you had forced him, I feel like he had $44 million. I feel like he's spending that much on, you know, like junior men's and spa dates right now. (laughs) But it's it's so it's like it's it's depressing um, even when you're like, oh, look, something's happening. But you're like, oh, he still isn't really responsible for it. No, no, I don't think anybody is coming out of this Weinstein case being like, God, I sure hope all he has to do is pay people money. Like, I'm sure that's what he's done for years (laughs) and years. It's like a disgusting idea that it's just another form of making it go away, which is what he has done successfully for, you know, um, decades at this point, I'm sure. But um, no, I mean, like, it's nice that people will be collecting money. But uh, I think what he's taken away from a lot of these people is just quality time in their lives. And that's what should be uh, subtracted from his own life. 75,000 ain't going to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, because uh, first of all, 
only 30 million is going to be split by the accusers. 14 million will be allocated to the legal fees of Mr. Weinstein's associates, including former board members of his company who were named as defendants in the suit. <laughs> okay. <laughs> It's important to know that this is like, uh, I'll guess, like one ninth of the full onslaught of things occurring against Harvey Weinstein. But really, there's just no joy in the the idea of him getting money to people. You know? Yeah, um, but he the he's still facing those criminal charges. Yeah. So um, he's still facing criminal charges in New York for allegations of sexual violence against two women. He's accused of raping a woman in a New York hotel room in 2013 and forcibly performing oral sex on another woman. Um, and he also faces two counts of predatory sexual assault, one count of a criminal sexual act in the first degree, one count of first degree rape, and one count of third degree rape. God damn. I have not heard a sentence like that since an SVU marathon. <laughs> uh, and usually they get off and someone gets murdered and Olivia Benson looks sad at the end. <laughs> Also, Ashley Judd took to Twitter to reassure the public that her lawsuits against Weinstein are not over. Ashley Judd tweeted, my lawsuit against hashtag Harvey Weinstein is ongoing and I intend to take him to trial. Hashtag Me Too. Hashtag Me Too movement. And then she later added that she is not a party to any of the settlement. It's, I mean, good. It's also, it's just this thing too when these guys... It's all sort of happened so late. Mm -hmm. Even if he, like, let's say he goes to prison for these rapes. You're still like, wow, you lived decades as a rich, successful person. Like, you're probably going to, like, it was sort of, I remember Joe Paterno when, like, shit started getting hot and he just died. Right. Where it was like, hmm. Okay, you definitely knew that dude was raping all those kids, and he was super old, which is what I sort of thought Bill Cosby would do. I thought Bill Cosby was just going to die. Mm -hmm. He's like, I'm old. I don't want to go to jail. I'm just going to be done with this. Instead, I think he just went blind in prison and is now solving crimes on the well, CW. <laughs> he was blind. But he was going <laughs> blind before that. But um, it's sort of, it's just, even if even when they end up in prison, there's such a lack of satisfaction because you're like, Bill Cosby got to live most of his life without mm -hmm. any repercussions as a wealthy, beloved, famous person with all of this privilege. Joe Paterno got to live as a hero. I mean, I know he's not Jerry Sandusky, but, you know, and that's different shit. But still, and Harvey Weinstein got to live most of his life just fine. And even if he does go to jail, you know, whatever, he's 60-something years old. Like, it's, mm -hmm. it just the doesn't have The 90s and 2000s were his heyday. Yeah, you know? it just. He had all the fun he was going to have. And, and also, he had just basically a delivery system of women to him. Yeah, and he's probably, you know, like, if he goes to jail, you're like, how long is he really going to live? Like, I imagine him just, like, dying at 74 and, like, okay, that was over. But still, most of your life, you lived without any punishment. And it's just, it's the scenario that you want is not possible. You want him to have been caught doing this shit 20 years ago. Um, but it still just doesn't leave, you know, like, I don't think with any of these, this sort of feeling of like justice, ah, we really, we feel like we did it will ever happen. Yeah. You know, I mean, and sometimes there's this idea, I guess, that a settlement can maybe feel better for a victim, you know, instead of having to stand a trial and relive the entire situation. But, you know, even this settlement, it just feels like it's sort of nothing, you know, yeah. it feels like, it feels like not a real settlement awarded that makes a statement that he really did anything wrong. Like, I mean, it's like putting even, a bandaid on a yeah, trauma. He's yeah. not even fucking mm -hmm. paying it. So, yeah. I mean, it's not, you know, something like the Central Park Five where you're like, you robbed these kids of their time. You're, we're, this money that you're getting is 
in a way it's to make up for that time that's mm -hmm. lost. And obviously the trauma of it, you can't fix that. But that feels a little bit more satisfying in a way. And in particular, because this is like, it's criminal shit. Mm -hmm. So it's like, no matter what, the the best punishment for criminal, you know, whatever, the most apt punishment for criminal behavior is jail or yeah. prison. And so the money thing is just, that's not how we think of making up for criminal behavior. Mm -hmm. You know, families were like someone, you know, your loved one is murdered. You're not like... The thing that brought me peace was the $20 million settlement. It was like knowing that this person can't do this to someone else or that they've, you know, they've been punished in a way that feels appropriate to me. Well, and also, you know, bringing up even like the Central Park Five or someone getting a settlement for, you know, like a family member who's been killed or something. That is like one person or like five people, right? Like right. Harvey Weinstein has so many victims that even this amount, like, it sort of feels like nothing and settlements like that should be to, you know, you've lost part of your life, you know, like maybe you um, weren't able to pay bills in that um, time period. Maybe you needed like extensive therapy, um, other things that you like really need to take care of. And I don't think the piddly money that's going to go to these people from the settlement is going to help them with anything that they've had to deal with over the past few years since Harvey um, assaulted them. You know, it's like people who lost careers or like had to leave the industry or anything like that. Like you can't rebuild that with, you know, $70,000. I, I feel like Ashley Judd's trial will be the, I mean, the, there'll be this criminal trial in the fall, but hers where she's like, you, it's like defamation, right? It's like, you fucked up my career. Um, and I, and I think, you know, unfortunately too, because this, she's someone that we're familiar with and, you know, I think that trial will probably be the one where most people, you know, depending which way it goes, feels the most sort of catharsis of, okay, he got what was coming to him because it's the most representative mm -hmm. of what he did, which was not only just assaulting women, but also ruining their careers and undermining them in that way. And so I feel like she'll be kind of that the avatar for the feeling that we all want, which is like, that's what we want him punished for. Also, I think um, there's something particularly unsatisfying about the fact that this kind of money settlement doesn't do anything to disassemble the system that kept him afloat. You know what I mean? It's just like, oh, we're, we're knocking off the kingpin and nothing else, you know? Yeah. No, um, there's really no sort of talk about what's going to happen with the people who sort of enabled him. Um, and we'll get to one of those people later um, in this episode. Uh, but, you know, also just the whole Hollywood ecosystem. And it's been what is it, like almost two years mm -hmm. now since this Me Too movement has happened. And when you're only seeing that this now is all that's happening to Harvey, it's like, the girl was changed. You want to know for <laughs> real what I bet the biggest change will be within the industry is these studios and production companies will take out larger insurance policies. Yeah. <laughs> to be honest, they're like, oh, shit, we just need to make sure that like someone else will have to pay when inevitably one of these fucking men puts their hands on someone. Right. Well, that's life-affirming. Yeah. yeah. It's and it, the other disheartening thing is that the studios probably know exactly who they need to take these life insurance. Oh, yeah. Exactly, like who the, yeah, yeah. exactly who they need to take these insurance policies out on because there's probably stories or like minor complaints that have come up before and they're like, cool, well, let's gird our loins yeah. before anything else happens. Yeah. Or rewrite the contract, like a sort of Les Moonves situation where it's like, how do we just make sure we don't have to pay him his money mm -hmm. when when we have to fire him finally after a very long time? <sighs> wow. Well, 
I guess we did not get him as Rose McGowan thought. <laughs> How's she doing? I haven't heard from her in a while. I don't know. A tweeting with Alyssa Milano. Oh, right. they are. Well, they're not friends, but. Oh, that's right. She had the, the, was she the one with the younger man situation? That's Asia Argento. Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. So. Don't want to get into any of that. Yeah, yeah. no. A lot, a lot of franchise spinoffs from this Harvey yes. Weinstein situation. Uh, when we're back, we will be talking to Kyle Buchanan of the New York Times about Can and Quentin Tarantino. Keep It is brought to you by Hinge. Hinge is the dating app designed to be deleted. If you're really good at it, that is. I've actually met several really good friends through Hinge. I've used it, I can't believe this, over a decade now. Woof, what a life I've had. Well, you know what they've added within a decade of us being on Hinge is their new LGBTQIA plus prompts, which are designed to help queer daters better connect based on similarities, interests, and compatibility. Hinge prompts helps you show off your full personality and connect with someone who appreciates you. Plus, these prompts were created in collaboration with GLAAD, so they are by the people, for the people. Some of the prompts are, the first time I knew I was gay was, mm, I was literally in the act of being gay, like hooking up with somebody when I admitted it. <laughs> Denial is strong and hard in the Catholic Midwest. Mine was Tom Cruise's Vanity Fair cover. The shirtless one. You just turned to an imaginary camera and said, I'm gay. Yeah. Or broke the fourth wall. <laughs> You're like Fleabag. Other prompts include, I feel proudest of who I am when. It feels affirming when others, blank. I connect to my community by. I wish I could tell the younger version of myself. I'm going to say, whenever I watch that in a drag race semifinal, when they're like, if I could talk to my younger self, I would say, I would be like, girl, get tighter clothes. I mean, what's going on with what you're wearing? You look like you're in the X Games. Other prompts include, my chosen family is the best at and gender euphoria looks like. Download Hinge and show off your full self using their LGBTQIA plus prompts today. Then find someone worth deleting the app for. Keep It is brought to you by Barefoot Dreams. Lewis? Yes? When you see footprints in the sand, that was when I carried you in my Barefoot Dreams rub. Now, is that a Leona Lewis song? <laughs> no? Uh, if you want to bring coziness into your life, you turn to Barefoot Dreams, especially now as the brand is celebrating their 30th anniversary. With those 30 years of coziness, Barefoot Dreams celebrates being the originators of everyone's favorite luxe home blanket. And while many have attempted to duplicate their blankets, robes, and more, Barefoot Dreams' fabrication and quality cannot be replicated, so don't believe the dupes. Girl, this blanket is it. I effing love this blanket. I'm thinking about it right now, and I want to jump in my bed, which is sponsored by something that we'll do another ad for momentarily. Get ready. There's a reason why Barefoot Dreams has been on Oprah's favorite things list six times. Jesus, get a life, Oprah. My God. <laughs> Dressing head to toe in Barefoot Dreams is the key to comfort as their collection of ultra-soft robes, loungewear, and accessories are made with premium materials. Their products make the perfect gifts, too. Uh, I throw this thing on. I wear it like a shawl. I look exactly like Ellen Burstyn. And <laughs> I am the coziest a human being can be. Because by the way, it's still that time in Los Angeles where it's like pretty mild outside and then your apartment is cold. I can't explain mm. it. I don't know things like basic science. For Keep It listeners, you can get 15% off your first purchase at barefootdreams.com with the code KEEPIT15. 
Don't miss out on Barefoot Dream's soft, soothing fabrics that will bring luxury to your life. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of blackness from NPR and how I live my life every day. Oh, I'm glad to bear witness to it. (laughs) Each of NPR's black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of a struggle. It sounds like you at Coachella. I'm already tuned in. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be black today, told from a unique black perspective, from Bobby Shmurda to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations. There's no limit to the range of black stories, black truths. Black perspectives have always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center black voices. It's NPR Noir. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as very nuanced and black as the country we reflect. Stories should never be about us without us. Doesn't the black experience sound like a three-disc Prince album we never got? Someone check the vault, please. <laughs> Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Bonjour. Welcome back. Uh, the fanciest French party that we definitely were not invited to. Um, Speak for yourself. Actually, it's true. Go ahead. Lewis has a standing invite to can. Right. Uh, <laughs> he's just too busy. <laughs> uh, Sorry, El Fanning. <laughs> Couldn't make it. The 72nd annual Cannes Film Festival in France wrapped up last week with the jury president, Alejandro Inaritu, announcing the group's unanimous decision to award the Palme d'Or to Bong Joon-ho, a South Korean director, for his film Parasite. Um, Bunch of I, words there you just used. You know, um, I, I, like, I like some of his movies. He did Snowpiercer. Um, Snowpiercer. Did I like it? I liked performances in it. Anyway, go ahead. Okay. Well, I liked Okja. Parts I of it. I d- didn't like Okja. Okay. Well, parts of it. W- what I saw. Tilda was, of course, wonderful. It go played on. while I was cooking dinner. Anyway, today, to talk about all of this, we have the New York Times carpetbagger columnist, Kyle Buchanan, here with us today. Thank you for having me. Hi, Kyle. I'm happy to be here. Fresh off the the plane. (laughs) Fresh. Well, we're losing that. You were using that word loosely. (laughs) Um, No. Okay. So Parasite, let's talk about this right away because exactly that reaction you had where you're sort of saying, well, I like this Bong Joon-ho film. I don't know about this one. Mm -hmm. This is the first one where I could recommend it to just about anybody because it is that Mm. good. Like, it's amazing. Ira, you'll love it. It's about a family of scammers. Um, Mm. Great. 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 But yeah, it's this wonderful movie that won the Palme d'Or. It's kind of exciting and genre-ish. It's about, yeah, this family, this uh, father, son, wife, daughter, and they all kind of scam their way into a rich family's home and sort of take up residence there and turn the household upside down. And it's almost too easy for the first hour, <laughs> mm-hmm. leading you to believe that something is going to go down and something does. And then it becomes deeper. It's like this roller coaster ride where you're never quite sure where it's going to end up. And it's just, oh, it's so good. I'm so psyched that it actually won the Palm because it doesn't always go to the best film there. Yeah. And I can't wait for people to see it. I'm so psyched about Korean movies, about scammers. I wish that more <laughs> people had seen The Handmaid. Oh my, yeah, yeah. The Handmaiden is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. No Korean film has ever been nominated for Best Foreign Film at the Oscars, which is crazy. But I think that this one is going to not just get nominated for that, but hopefully Best Director even. It's so good. It'll be at the AMC next week. 
Uh, yeah, well, we'll see. We'll see. Uh, so... For our listeners, you know, who, unlike me, you know, don't extensively vacation on Paris in my pied-à-terre, <laughs> uh, what is Cannes? What is the Palme d'Or? Yeah. And why is it so prestigious? So the Cannes Film Festival is this big film festival in May. It's kind of the cream of the crop of world cinema. When you're thinking of film festivals that happen throughout the year, there's Sundance in January. That's where all the independent films happen. It's in Utah. It's snowy. You've got Cannes in uh, May. Uh, that's where, yeah, it's in the south of France. It's gorgeous and tends to be sort of like the these big established directors. And then you've got Toronto and Telluride and all those in the fall, which are all the Oscar movies. And also, I would say Cannes is a very seen and be seen type festival where it's just the glamour level is extreme. Yeah, well, I mean, you're not going to get a lot of glamour in Sundance where everybody is wearing snow boots. Right, it's and, like, oh, and, oh, Andy McDowell has job purse. <laughs> well, I mean, I find that glamorous. But. Can you please explain to me why Kendall Jenner was there? Yeah, well, Kendall Jenner is there almost every year, which yes, is very she weird. Is. Kendall Jenner and Not Ava a Longoria. A lo- yeah. I, the people that I see on the carpet, I saw like Winnie Harlow, who looked great, but just people where I'm like, you're not a filmmaker, you're not an actor, and you're not even really in that set of yeah. people. Like they're just, you're like, I like Naomi Campbell to me rolls up anywhere and you're mm-hmm. like, I don't know why she's here. She has nothing to do with any of this, but I believe that everyone there is interested <laughs> in her being there. I don't know that the same, I could say the same for Kendall Jenner. Like who's she talking to at these parties? Well, I think Cannes is kind of the Miami of France. Right. Mm-hmm. So like, you're going to get some Miami type celebrities. Yes. Like it is incredibly glamorous. Like the most ridiculous things that you could do, you know, these yacht parties or sometimes you take a helicopter to a party. It's really Really absurd, yeah. like lavish in the extreme. Crazy rich film bloggers. Yeah. <laughs> no, you feel, I mean, at least I do, like I'm a secret agent who's undercover for two weeks <laughs> wearing a tuxedo every day, which is just an absurd, like not usually part of my experience. <laughs> I am the type of person who just buys a Slim Jim at the gas station <laughs> for lunch, you know, and now I'm eating caviar. It's crazy. Right. But so yeah. there's dress codes, too, and things, right? Because well, so, I remember yeah, that uproar where Kristen Stewart was like, she didn't want to wear heels there. Yeah. Well, well yeah, where she wears sneakers. No, yeah. the dress code is, I mean, that's another one of the things that's so extreme. In order to get into these premieres, uh, every man has to be wearing a tux with a bow tie, and the women are supposedly not allowed to even wear flats. You've got to be in high heels. Ah. And you've got to be wearing a dress. Now, obviously, people like Kristen Stewart have been challenging that, but people who aren't as famous as Kristen Stewart, they still will ding you for it. I mean, I remember even a couple years ago, Zachary Quinto produced this movie, All is Lost, with Robert Redford. Mm-hmm. He went to his own premiere of the movie that he had produced, and he goes up there, I think he was wearing... Not sure if it was like a bolo tie or just like a regular tie. And they said, sir, we cannot let you in. You're not wearing a bow tie. And he's like, I produced this movie. It's about to premiere in 10 minutes. And they said, well, go across the street and buy a bow tie. There's Gucci. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, on some level, you've got to sort of respect it because that is crazy to like hold the extreme. Like, I mean, when we think of the glamour of Cannes, when you see those pictures of Elle Fanning on that incredible red carpet, I don't know what she was promoting, but she was was promoting herself. She was on the jury. jury, Okay. And she came there like, listen, I'm going to be my I'm going to be photographed seeing these films every day. I want it to be a major moment. And she used that red carpet wisely. But yeah, I mean, that is how crazy it is. Does, and I, does yeah. it make the movies better? To see everybody in like, like their do, best finery? Do you finery? feel that sitting, watching a movie in a tuxedo, that has enhanced your movie <laughs> your movie viewing? It's a good question. You know, I mean, like, to some extent, maybe there's more of a buy-in because right. you, like, got dressed up for it. But, you know, it's kind of like, 
if you look at Cannes holistically, it is this, you know, high holy temple of cinema. You know, you like pronounce the ma part of cinema. Um, and they uphold that by, you know, having all of these standards and crazy restrictions. And it's like very old school glamour. The downside of that is like the movie industry is changing. It is changing so fast. And in some ways, Cannes can be left behind by that, you know, until recently, and still even, they've had real problems when it comes to representation, when it comes to female filmmakers. They don't buy in on these people like, you know, a Sundance Film Festival where half of their competition is female filmmakers does. So Cannes has a lot of ground to make up. And I think that when you have those old school attitudes and you're really, you know, you're, you're prioritizing that presentation, maybe you're letting a couple other things pass you by. Here's my question about Cannes. I feel like a major part of the press that comes out of Cannes is literally what films got standing ovations. Okay, yeah. And here's, so when you're Rocket in Rocket Man, five minutes. That's uh-huh. what I'm saying. Like, and because these are movies that haven't aired elsewhere and there's no critical consensus about them, I don't think, let's say the people who make the movie, why wouldn't they get up and scream mm-hmm. for it? You know what I mean? Like, because then that gets picked up. Do you sit in a room a screening at Cannes and think I'm suspicious of everybody here and what they're actually <laughs> reacting to and whether or not what I watched was actually good. And okay. how do you clap for five mi- or like okay. 20 minutes? Okay. I know, like, There's a lot to talk about here. So there's two different sort of parallel tracks at Cannes. There's the press screenings and there's the premieres. The press screenings are famous in the other way because that's where people boo. <laughs> which is really crazy to me. I mean, like, you know, like, I think the American way of not liking a movie is to, like, file out silently and then tweet about it. <laughs> that is not the French method. <laughs> like, I've been sitting there watching movies that I actually liked or loved, and then after they end, people scream and boo and jeer and hiss, Jeez. which is amazing. Um, I remember there was a film called The Neon Demon that played there uh, a couple years ago with Elle Fanning. Right. Uh, that movie uh, is wild. It was directed, it is very <laughs> wild. It was directed by Nicholas Winding Refn, and the very last thing in the movie is his dedication to his wife. It says, for Liv. And a French journalist stood up and yelled, fuck you, Liv. I mean, that's how pissed they were. So <laughs> To be a... fair, the movie said, fuck you, Liv. <laughs> I mean, the movie is a troll job, and then the French press trolled him back. So you've got that going on in the, at the, almost the same time, and sometimes literally at the same time, in a different theater, are the premieres. That is where everybody gets dressed up. That's when they're in their tuxedos and all their finery. And after those end, that is when the famous standing ovations happen. And they are truly crazy. Now, as you said, Lewis, like, yeah, obviously, all these people are incredibly invested in giving themselves mm-hmm. a standing ovation. Yeah. We, that has never been a problem for Hollywood. They mm-hmm. love to, like, clap in their own honor. But this is, like, truly, again, like most things that can take it to the extreme. Like, there's a, a video camera there that sort of goes, it's projecting what it shows on the big screen. So, you know, say at Rocket Man, you'll have the video camera. It'll be on Elton John. Everybody will applaud for Elton John. Mm-hmm. It will go to his right. There's Taron Egerton. Now to Richard Madden. Now the director. So it's going, it's showing mm-hmm. you every single one of these people. You can get maybe like three minutes of applause out of that. Then the camera will go back to the first person. <laughs> no way. And applause start again. Then they kind of like nudge some of these people to like interact in combinations. Like now Taron, you hug Elton John. Oh. Now Elton John, you hug so-and-so. It's truly crazy. Yeah. Yeah. No, it goes on basically forever. And then sometimes it can wane and then come back. That's like overdone 
ovations yeah. in theater where, you know, like each actor comes out yeah. and then you clap for them. But then like the audience is still clapping. So they have to come back out and <laughs> bow again. Well, at least people kind of know what to do for that. It's yeah. like now these people will come out. Now these people com- <laughs> will come out. When Parasite premiered that Bong Joon-ho film that won the Palm, you can see it because they even put it on YouTube. The standing ovation is going on so long that Bong starts talking to his lead actor. Like he's like, I don't know what to do. This is so <laughs> awkward. He, he turns to Tilda Swinton who's behind him and he's like, I'm hungry. Like, <laughs> can this stop so we can go eat? It's crazy. It has uh, that like state of the union feel. Just like, what are yeah. we doing? It's just noise. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, everything is amped up to, like way past 11 at Cannes. So I want to get into some controversy at Cannes. Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood had its world premiere at the film festival. And that is his film about Sharon Tate and the Manson murders. And... Hollywood in general, um, which is what all his movies are about anyway. Um, A New York Times reporter, um, someone from, you know, your paper. Yes, I've heard of it. (laughs) Asked Tarantino if it was a deliberate choice to give Margot Robbie's Sharon Tate much fewer lines than her male counterparts in the movie. And he responded, well, I just reject your hypothesis. Yes. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That's all he said. Yes. And that Margot said um, the tragedy ultimately was the loss of innocence. And to really show those wonderful sides of her, I think, could be adequately done without speaking. That is also the weirdest part of it. The tragedy is the loss of innocence. Murdered pregnant woman. Also, uh, a question isn't a hypothesis. A question doesn't necessarily require a hypothesis. You're just like... It's an interview. Mm-hmm. You ask questions. Yes. I mean, truly, this is the tip of the iceberg <laughs> when it comes to things we're going to be talking about with this movie. This movie is <laughs> oh, going really? to be keeping the hot take industry in business all summer long. A.K.A. me. Yeah. Well, I mean, and, and listen, there's going to be plenty to talk about for good or for ill. It, this was actually the first Tarantino movie I left where I'm like, what did I think of that? Mm. Like, I felt it's a very long movie, first of all. How long is it? It's two hours 45. Die, die, <laughs> die, die. Cut 45 minutes off well, that movie. Three he's hours going, shorter he's than going back eight. and re-editing it, although he's kind of teased that he might just put in more stuff. Oh, you don't say. Yeah. It's, it's leisurely. I'll say that. That was what was surprising about me. <laughs> I watched that trailer and I'm like, okay, I get the Zippy Tarantino movie this is going to be. And it's not really that. Mm-hmm. It's a lot more sort of relaxed. Um, but yeah, this. I mean, this is a movie... I mean, there's a lot going on in this movie. One thing I can say is that the performances are great. Like, Leonardo DiCaprio is wonderful. Like, I, I appreciate that he's treating The Revenant as kind of like an aberration, and he's going back to what he did right before that with Wolf of Wall Street and Great Gatsby, where he's like, actually, I'm funny. Yeah. You know? Like, like, you know what I think his best performances that. is Django Unchained. Yeah, he's you know, great in that it's as like well. A, I don't, that character doesn't exist elsewhere to me. You yeah. It's interesting. He's, I mean, he's very funny, very poignant, but he understands like how to play those dramatic moments with a sense of humor. Brad Pitt is great in it. It's like the best use he's been out of a David Fincher film. So... You know, I like those. I like seeing Hollywood recreated. But there's a ton of other stuff where I'm like, oh, wow. Okay, sure. I mean, two hours and 45 minutes. Yeah. There's 45 minutes worth of stuff that, I mean, I've, I've said this before. I'm like, a movie over 90 minutes, I need a good reason. Correct. A movie over two hours, 
almost doesn't need to exist. Yeah, well, I mean, it's fascinating how those two hours and, and, and change are used, you know, and especially like one of the things people are going to talk about when it comes to this movie is how it treats women. Now, mm-hmm. obviously, Tarantino has written some female characters that are iconic. Did he write that for Margot Robbie? Not necessarily. <laughs> right. So the you question know? here was, you know, like. A lot of people online were having this debate. Oh yeah, uh, because people who, who have not seen this movie, who doesn't and they love were a, <laughs> who doesn't love a Memorial Day weekend debate in film <laughs> Twitter about whether or not he treats his female characters, you know, well. Yeah, um, and you know, obviously he has the Bride. You know, people like Vernita Green. You know, he has Jackie Brown, um, Uma Thurman, and Pulp Fiction. Yeah, you know, um, so he has those characters. But then you also have the flip side of. That interview um, of Uma Thurman, where she talked about her um, horrible treatment on the set of Kill Bill, and then, you know, his association with Harvey Weinstein and other people like that, where you're just sort of like, what Quentin Tarantino seems like a person who treats women horribly. So do we really think that his female characters are that great in retrospect? Okay, so two points in response to this. One is kind of fucked up, so steal yourselves. <laughs> um, you know, in that uh, that article about Uma Thurman that you're, you're referencing, she talks about how she drove this blue Carmen Ghia on the set of Kill Bill, and mm-hmm. he asked her to drive it very, very fast, and it uh, crashed and almost killed her. Mm-hmm. You know, which was an extremely traumatic thing that ended up being like a mm-hmm. years long rift between them. Mm-hmm. Um, Brad Pitt drives a blue Carmen Ghia at top speed in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Mm. And it's, I guess, for Tarantino, the way he's framing it, it's like, look, it's the car from Kill Bill back again. And I just thought to myself, wouldn't you never want to see that car again after it almost <laughs> killed your muse? Right. Yeah. But it's just like, I mean, I think that's how Tarantino operates. It's all about cinema love for him and the real world like barely intrudes upon it. As we know, the real world does intrude on art and the real world is going to intrude on the art that he has made here. He's when literally it comes the killer in passing death judgment birth. on it. Well, he yeah. wants an actor dead. I mean, listen, so uh, there's, there's a lot of stuff I won't get into because it's spoilery, but like treatment of women is a big deal in this movie. And when it comes to Margot's performance in this film, you know, the the posters, the trailers would sell it like it's these three giant stars. And the reality of the situation is like she's not in it hardly at all. She's kind of treated more as this symbolic presence, like, you know, this beautiful, uh, guileless, innocent mm. woman. But like for the first hour of this film, she doesn't speak a single line. You know, I think there's also something about this movie that I don't understand because it doesn't seem to really be about her. And I yeah. don't really gather what the story okay, is. Okay, so it's set in 1969, which is the year that the Mansons... Uh, the man's family did kill off Sharon Tate, who's an actress who was dating Roman Polanski at the time. But the movie is a lot more about uh, DiCaprio's character, who's this kind of like washed up star of Westerns, and Brad Pitt, who is his longtime stuntman. And they live next door to Polanski and Sharon Tate. So you see them every so often. Sometimes the camera will follow or the story will follow Tate. Uh, But it's really, really a lot more about these men. Mm -hmm. They are centered in the story with this sort of like undercurrent of the Manson family shit going on. And does it all come to a head later in the movie? Yes, but like in the maybe not in the ways that you're thinking, unless you're thinking that Tarantino does like to revise history a lot. And then in which case, maybe exactly the way that you're thinking. It it sort of seems like with Tarantino, if he's interested in a female character, he's really interested in her. Mm -hmm. And then beyond that, it's like you look at like Kerry Washington, Django Unchained, who didn't speak much either. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's like, well, when... As opposed to just like women are half of the world, so almost any story 
to me, involves women, yeah. like most of the time. Like they are a relevant part of the story being told versus for him, it's sort of like, well, this is about this. And so women, like we don't need to, that's not what this is about, which feels like his response with Margot Robbie, yeah. which is like, well, that's not what the movie's about, which is, I get that line of thinking. That is not practically how people should be moving through the world. Right. It's true and it's untrue, yeah. right? I mean, uh, for that first hour when I was watching it where I'm like, she has not said anything yet. I thought, okay, well, maybe this is the conceit of the film, that, like, she is someone who exists to be talked about by men but never fully understood, which, like, if that's where you're going to go, then okay, I get it as a concept. But then, like, she has a few scenes where she says a little bit. She still doesn't say that much. Mm -hmm. I mean, Lena Dunham has almost as many lines in this movie. <laughs> I forgot she was oh, in this well, movie. I mean, she's not Squeaky From, though. That's Dakota Fanning. No, that's Fanning. Dakota Fanning. Yeah. What's, so what's um, interesting is that there's just sort of this concept, I mean, this, Picasso thing, maybe, you know, with like men with women as muses um, sort of in some way can see them as this powerful sort of artistic being that they can represent. It, you know, if you have an Uma Thurman in a Kill Bill, you know, a Pam Greer in a Jackie Brown, those are like, okay, I'm really elevating these women. But Otherwise, you know, they think if you're a person who thinks of women that way, you're also interested in a movie about men and showing just sort of how what happened to a woman affects their interior lives. And so it makes you sort of think that he's not ever really interested in women, just sort of the concept of how women make him feel. He's, in the, he's interested in the concept of women. I mean, listen, it's an extrapolation that some people will make. I, I love a lot of his other female characters. I think, you know, he treats them in a, in a way that is complicated. But mm -hmm. at least some of these earlier characters I responded to. Like, I kind of mm -hmm. liken it to James Cameron, right? Like, he gave us so many iconic characters. Uh, uh, Ripley in Aliens is amazing. Linda Hamilton in the Terminator movies. But Kathy that... Bates and Titanic moving right along. <laughs> but does that mean that we can't sort of look at, you know, Zoe Saldana and the way that she's treated in Avatar and like talk mm -hmm. about it? You know, I mean, it's relevant to have these. Well, even that, but... you know, like Ripley was written as a man. Yeah. You know, and like then all you have to do is look at Jamie Lee Curtis and True Lies. And it's like, you know, she's sure. stripping to get stuff happen in that movie. My last question for you is. How many times did they say the N-word in this movie? Shockingly none. Is, oh but there's also no, is that, this, there's oh. no black people in it at all. Of course. Yeah. Because, you know, they, the they weren't around. In the 60s. Yeah. The, not, not at all. Not in Los Angeles. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, I think that idea of the male gaze, it's, it's something that extends even beyond Tarantino that I saw all the time in Cannes. You know, I mean, there was this crazy movie, this three and a half hour movie from the... I know, Kara. <laughs> like, this direct... This movie from the director of Blue is the Warmest Color. Oh, yeah. This instantly notorious fiasco that screened at Cannes this year called Mektub, My Love, Intermezzo. And it is basically three and a half hours of watching women twerk. Like, what? not just watching them twerk, but like literally the camera only being on their asses. We already have that. It's called the internet. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, so this this movie, yeah, I mean, ostensibly there's a story. It's kind of like following these young people on, you know, one crazy summer day where they're at the beach and then they go to the nightclub. But it is truly monomaniacal and you it's like single-minded. Yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah. Oh Three and a half hours of it. Like, And also, I mean, knowing what I know about Blue is the Warmest Color, where this director, uh, Abdelatif Kashish, fought with his actresses about, you know, what they considered to be really exploitive working conditions, like a weird male gaze on this lesbian film. And like, 
him making them do these scenes over and over and over. I just watched all this twerking in this movie being like, was there a paramedic on set? Can you die from twerking so much? Like, it was just terrifying to yeah. me. I don't know how these women survived the movie. I really don't. And I mean, it takes a break maybe three hours in for a 13-minute sequence of unsimulated oral sex. Uh, that still managed. Three Wait. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, Girl. three hours in, they like how uh, the brown money. Uh, yeah, two of the characters go to a club bathroom, and he goes down on her, and it still manages to be about her ass. I don't know. I Good mean, god. like, yeah. So, well, we all learned a lot. <laughs> yeah. Uh, lastly, Antonio Banderas won for Almodovar's Pain and Glory, yes, and I love Almodovar, and I love Antonio Banderas. Is this good? Oh, it's amazing. This okay. is one of my favorite films uh, of the festival. It's called Pain and Glory. Yeah, I love Almodovar, too. I feel like even like an okay Almodovar film, you still love watching it because he's got such confidence behind the camera and just the aesthetics <laughs> of the thing. Yeah. The places people live, like the clothes that people are wearing. Yeah. It's kind of like Nancy Myers movies for gay men. Mm-hmm. If Nancy <laughs> Myers movies aren't already Nancy Myers right, movies I was I'm doing the math. I yeah. mean, one of his most problematic <laughs> movies is still my favorite of his. Which one? Time Me Up, Time Me Down. Oh, I mean, like, all of the Almodovar movies sort of are problematic if they're viewed in, like, that kind of way. But the movies are about, like, engaging with that sort of thing. You know, it's people on the fringes of society doing crazy shit. Mm. Um, This movie is great because it's uh, basically Antonio Banderas is playing Pedro Almodovar. Like, literally down Mm. to he's wearing Almodovar's clothes. Mm. He's living in Almodovar's actual apartment. And it's taking Mm. this filmmaker who's been so, like, punk rock for most of his career and picking up... Like, kind of like in the later part of his life as he looks back on his life and career and his love affairs and all that. And I like as he's been doing that. Yeah. Because we're like broken embraces. Yeah. It, it made me realize like we see this kind of movie a lot, but directed by and about straight men. We even see it about straight men who are making it about straight male filmmakers, you mm-hmm. know, like an eight and a half or somebody sort of going back over his career. And it's kind of amazing to see it about an older gay man mm-hmm. because. It's a perspective that I don't think is centered in a lot of these movies. So for an older gay man to be like, where am I in my life? How do I feel about it? How much am I still haunted by this love affair? What do I want to do with myself? You know, physically, if, if I'm reaching this point in my life, what does that mean for someone, you know, who's always relied on his beauty? Uh, so And especially to see Antonio Banderas in this role, he's amazing. I'm going to say, I'm also thrilled. It sounds like it's going to enter him into the Oscar yeah, contest, which is will. like, he's never really been in it before. And that's, never. and by the way, it's a, about time. I just love him. Well, yeah. I mean, uh, watching Banderas in this movie, you're like, wow, we've really like slept on him for yeah. a while. And instead of, you know, wanting to sleep with him. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, he's so fantastic in this movie and he's such a charming person in person. He, I mean, when he would go do interviews for this movie, everybody fell in love. So I think that if he can bring that charm offensive to the Academy, they're going to fall all over him. He's well, wonderful in it. Call me Melanie Griffith because I love Antonio Banderas. <laughs> and I'm crazy in Alabama. Uh-huh. I have a great Antonio Banderas, <laughs> Melanie Griffith story that I'll say after. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. Kyle, thank you so much for being here. Uh, if more people me. want Kyle's film Insights, he is the carpetbagger columnist at yes. the New York Times. And it does not mean you are a northerner who's gone down to the no, south to cause trouble. But it is the number one thing that people ask me, why is it called carpetbagger? Uh, which I will briefly explain. David Carr, who was the original carpetbagger columnist, he started covering film and he didn't really know the sort of lay of the land of award season. So he called himself the carpetbagger. You know, he mm-hmm. sort of jumped in like, I don't belong here, but I'll write about it. 
I kind of have been covering film in the industry for a while, but kind I like of. to, yeah, yeah, well, yeah. I mean, I mean more my, than kind of, it's yes. It's my job. Yes. But I like to say that I'm carpetbagging the opposite direction now because I live in Los Angeles, but I'm a New York Times columnist. Ah. Mm. So. The wit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when we're back, we're going to talk about book smart versus Aladdin. <laughs> <laughs> The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. For over 130 years, McCormick has helped you make mom's lasagna to keep her secret recipe alive. Take over taco night, no matter how chaotic your day is. Conquer the bake sale, even if you get to it last minute. And craft the perfect Sunday brunch when it's not even Sunday. Because with McCormick by your side, it's going to be great. Here you are, BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. Despite its brilliance, critical acclaim, and director Olivia Wilde appearing on this podcast, uh, which has all of the power and influence in America and oh, yeah. the world. Sure. Uh, we are our own Netflix, I think. <laughs> um, Booksmart opened to a not-so-stellar $8.6 million at the box office. And, you know, the film was also up against Disney giant Aladdin and also... John Wick 3. And Avengers is still out. Yeah, Avengers is still out. And I mean, John Wick 3 is iconic, uh, as is the John Wick franchise. So it was going up against a lot of giants. But, you know, it was a surprising turn because critics and, you know, people on Twitter alike um, seem to really enjoy the movie. So it sort of begs the question what types of movies are audiences willing to pay money to see? In theaters now. Can you know? I sidestep this conversation to ask a, a petty question? Do we think the title Book Smart scared people off? Ah, uh, that's. Yeah. <laughs> if you think of a movie called Book Smart, do you think of what we saw well, on the screen there? No, not necessarily. Mm-hmm. And you know, people are afraid of books. Right. Yeah. Right, so right. they're like, are they going to make me read one to see the movie? <laughs> yeah. That's a good what a point. Test. Yeah. yeah. Will they be talking about Chaucer, <laughs> Rabelais, and Balzac? <laughs> no, that and also the idea that, sure, there are giants now like Disney who make going to the movies an event, right? You know, so like, the Marvel movies became a sort of you had to see it to see the next one. You know, you had to see the culmination of Endgame. And then there's things like Aladdin, which, you know, like 
trade on nostalgia, you know. And, and it's, it's a like, kids movie. Right. Yeah. Whole, you can bring even the idea of if you want to go, if your family you want to go see Booksmart, the adults, mm -hmm. you have to get a babysitter. Mm -hmm. Versus like, okay, we'll all go see Aladdin. We'll probably like it fine, and the kids will like it, and that's. I mean, I don't know. Movies are real expensive, but it's less of a kind of ordeal. Mm -hmm. um, and it's Memorial Day weekend, which is the other thing, which like on a random Friday night may not be your concern, but you're like, it's a holiday weekend. So presumably that's more in line with just sort of how people are approaching those few days. Yeah. So is this the question now? Is it a sign of like Netflix and Hulu, you know, sort of filling that gap of like, you know, character driven stories and people just wanting to stay home and watch movies? Or is it the factor of movies are expensive? You went up against a movie like Aladdin and Endgame is still out there. Also, it's Memorial Day weekend and people maybe just want to not spend time at the movie theaters anymore. Yeah, I also was not like when pe I thought the movie did fine. I mean, it didn't make, you know, the amount of money that people were like, I wanted it to make a hundred million dollars. You're like, okay, like, <laughs> come on. Um, but I didn't think it was like a failure. I thought mm -hmm. it was a smaller film. It's a comedy. It's like, it stars too. Like it, I wasn't like, sh and considering what they, who they went up against. So I did not agree with this narrative of like, what happened? I'm like, well, mm -hmm. you sort of know what happened there. Yeah. Um, but I, I think the other thing that people, you know, non sort of industry people don't think about or know or whatever, but it's just like the marketing of a movie and the extent to which that has an impact. And it doesn't matter how good the movie is. It really is. Um, it's just an enormous factor. And I think you see with like, Will Packer's a really good example with like, they market those films very well. You think like a man was like a case study for the strategy that they used to market that film. And it did very well. And so um, for better or worse, like that's just a really important component in all of these movies, which you don't think about when you're just like, I liked that movie a lot. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have a big sort of like teen star in the movie to draw people in, um, not just the title, like, you know, we watched the film and um, I saw nothing about what I saw in the film in most of the advertising. And, you know, people try to compare it to like a uh, female super bad or like a can't hardly wait. And I mean, like you need to sell people on the atmosphere that this is a raunchy teen comedy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, I mean, I can't stop thinking about how on Netflix, it really did seem like everybody I've ever met saw it to all the boys I've loved before, which is like not exactly similar to this movie, but has a lot of like similar components. Also, just as, um, from my personal experience, our friend Brendan Scannell is in this short uh, 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 web series called Bonding, which is about a dominatrix and like her assistant. And it's like we saw it. I saw it last summer or like six months ago or so. And it, it felt like a smallish, but like, you know, fun enough thing. And they, they it found its way to Netflix eventually. This weekend I was out with him. People would not stop coming up to him and saying, I know you from bonding. And by the way, he spent the past year and a half on uh, Heathers, Heathers on uh, TV Land, which, you know, had was, ended up being saw. kind of a fiasco. It's like, man, because this got to bonding, this show, which would I think has a similar demographic than Booksmart in a lot of ways, he is just like super propelled. It, it is very strange that like all of all this media of this type for this kind of audience is ending up in one place. I, I don't though. I didn't the, the comparisons because there were people there was someone that was like, 
Well, the movie did bad because everyone stayed home and watched Netflix, which is stupid and not true because TV has always existed. There's obviously more television. But frankly, you were in a situation where it's like, oh, it's TGIF. They ain't showing this shit again. So I'm absolutely staying home Mm -hmm. to watch it as opposed to at any point in my life, I can turn on Netflix when it's convenient for me to watch something. Right. Like the idea that that's keeping people home in a way. I'm not sure that I believe or understand that Um, in particular with movies, with TV, I think it's different but it's like as these streaming platforms have started to do more features you know they're they're getting more more movies roma obviously but i don't think netflix for me is still a place where you're like the movie like that's where i go to watch my movies i I don't think of it that way um and so i just don't and i think also like it is it's people going to movies in general Mm -hmm. like that is something that has been on a downturn for a while and so it's not the idea that hulu is responsible for it I, I just don't understand the evidence people are presenting to back that up. Because the benefit of a Hulu or a Netflix is the show you're watching, you can come back to because it's always going to yeah. be there. Yeah. You can step out for two hours if you want to. And Endgame is still making millions of dollars. Like people are going to the movies. Yeah. Um, it's just how are you getting that audience in there? If I can say one thing about Endgame, as much as I love Marvel, um, the Russo brothers are like on Twitter being like, Try to go see, like, the movie again or, like, support your favorite characters and stuff. And I'm like, Disney, chill out. You, you, already, you already have all the fucking money. Yeah. Like, you, we know that you want to beat Avatar. Yeah, I'm going to say, is this about bumping up against Avatar? But yeah. it's like, I'm, I'm tired of that, this level of, like, these blockbusters wanting to compete um, to, like, beat someone's sort of record and, like, sort of trying to incentivize fans to be like, oh, let's help this beat um, Avatar's record, etc. I'm like, I just want to see a good movie and be a fan of it. I don't need to participate in the capitalism game of helping you get several billion dollars. I also have the distinct feeling that these fans are already um, incentivized enough. Have anybody been more incentivized incentivized in human history mm-hmm. than these fans? You know, I think part of it, too, I think the response, because if you're looking at like people on Twitter and you're looking at writers and, and film people, they're like, well, Aladdin made $100 million. And it's like, of course it did. Mm-hmm. I don't know what's surprising about that. And I think that because we are like, we like Booksmart more. Mm-hmm. And like, that's a movie that I enjoyed and whatever. If you look at just the demographic of America, more people are going to go see Aladdin mm-hmm. and John Wick than not just this movie, but then a lot of movies. Mm-hmm. Um, so I also found that to be confusing mm-hmm. where it's like, what did, how did you, you didn't think Aladdin was going to do well? That's right. fucking Will Smith. It has like one of the largest movie stars on the planet who continues to like, is still out here making movies that make a lot of money, whether or not we're watching them or whatever. It's like, and it's in a beloved franchise mm-hmm. and a Disney movie. My and question, also a live, and like there hasn't been a live action a one of these movies ex- that hasn't done, yeah, has done poorly. has done a lot, has made a lot of money. So you can't be like, <laughs> what happened with Aladdin? Like, I don't know. It was tailor made to make, a, that was the, the whole point was mm-hmm. for it to make a stupid amount of money because that's what Disney does. And my question then would be to Annapurna, who made Booksmart, what the fuck would you release Booksmart against Aladdin? You know, it's like because it's like I get counter programming, but that's not putting sex in the city up against like a horror movie or like an action movie. You know, I feel like John Wick, too, might have been more because that I feel like that age. Mm -hmm. I could imagine a world where I would be with like a boyfriend Mm -hmm. and deciding between Booksmart and John Wick more Mm -hmm. than Mm -hmm. Booksmart and Aladdin. Um, 
And one thing that is sort of beautiful about Aladdin making all this money, one, uh, it proves that Will Smith can still like get people to theaters on a holiday weekend because historically that was his That's thing. His weekend, yeah. He would op- open up on like 4th of July mm-hmm. um, holiday weekends and show that people will, you know, leave their barbecue or whatever to go see a Will Smith movie. But, you know, it's has two, it has brown leads in it, you know, yeah. because so it's like. Uh, not it's, even just leads. Yes. Like most of the people in that movie are yeah. not white people. So you've got a bunch of brown people in a movie making a hundred million dollars, and it's like that's great. Yeah, I think it's a Nassim Pedrad vehicle. For <laughs> so understand that. Um, so I think that people are sort of ignoring that beautiful part about it, and also uh, there are some really great people of color with some roles in Booksmart, but I didn't see nary one of them in the trailers for the movie. Oh, so, that's interesting. You know. People yeah. probably didn't go see Booksmart who would have enjoyed that, who didn't know that. Um, Jessica Williams. Is yeah, in Jessica the movie. Williams yeah. is in the movie. Um, Austin Crute, who plays the black um, gay teenager, and also, you know, didn't really even highlight a lot of the queer elements. Yeah, of Noah the movie Galvin too. is great in that movie. Yeah, so, you know, it's like lead with your diversity and getting a niche audience who wants to go and support that movie, make people want to stand your movie to go see it. Um, I think that it just ended up, you know, going up against some bigger movies and then yeah. people online decided to be like, take off their little thinking caps and yeah. be like, I know it's Netflix. Yeah. And I, and I, <laughs> and just the idea that it's like, such it, it, like I don't want to use the word failure because I do not believe that. But that's what you see people saying, and mm-hmm. I'm like, in what you know, what are you talking about? Like that just it felt like people just wanting to have something to talk about. And I think also like again, it's a movie that if you really loved the movie, you want to see things that you love succeed and do really mm-hmm. well. But you know that's not always the case. So have your love for the movie. Like mm-hmm. oh my god, I still very much enjoyed it. I want to see it again. I'm so happy it got made. You know, it's not fully validated by a box office. Mm-hmm. And eight point six million. You're right. Like seems. Perfectly appropriate, given what other movies that are like this have been making lately, you know? And I mean, if they had been able to stick, like, you know, Noah Centineo in it or something, or, like, even a bigger star as the lead, maybe it would have made slightly more money. Can we—maybe some of these movies, can they just stick the word Marvels in front of it? Like, Marvels (laughs) love Simon. Just, like, it won't hurt. Be nice. Just do it. Disney's. Because, yeah. you know, when people people were also comparing it to, to Superbad, mm-hmm. it was marketed as in the universe of Judd Apatow, mm-hmm. who at that point had made successful movies. So it's not surprising. Like that, that movie, I don't know, is the best example. Like I get it in terms of the content of they're out for the night and whatever and they're mm-hmm. young. But like it had it, the stars that it had and you're like, if you liked Knocked Up, go to Superbad. I mean... That's a pretty convincing way to get mm-hmm. people to go see a movie. And also that movie had come out somewhat it was like a year before then. you know, Right. It, it, exactly. So it was really like riding the momentum of that. So like I just I just feel like people I feel like people wanted a different outcome, which I fully get and also agree with and very much feel. But then I think their rationalization and their explanations for it just like didn't really make sense. Mm. All right. Well, if you. Have not seen Booksmart. Go see it because it's great. It's so good. Yeah, I would tell you if it sucked. It's yeah. great. Yeah. First of all, one of the biggest problems with Hollywood movies is the second week drop off. So right. go see the fucking movie this weekend. Right. If you want to support it. Um, or Rocket Man or whatever you want to see. <laughs> Do you. <laughs> when we're back, keep it. And we're back. 
with our favorite segment of the episode. It's Keep It. Keep It Up last week was a little too positive for me. So It was disgusting. Yeah, I'm ready to dive into Keep It to talk about some shit that we don't like again. Lewis. You look like you're on the edge of your feet. Yeah. (laughs) Well, also, we just spent an entire weekend in Palm Springs, and I am so sleep deprived. I feel like a petrified Georgia O'Keeffe cow skull. So (laughs) pardon me as I reanimate. My keep it this week is to, I think, definitively my least favorite Oscar winner of all time, John Voight. And I include the movies Suicide Squad and Love Story. Love Story might be the original baby boomer onslaught on America, by Love the way. Love Story is a disgusting, awful movie. And the tagline, love means never having to say you're sorry, is wild. Abusive. It's disgusting. <laughs> um, so John Voight basically just released a PSA. Uh, he, John Voight, by the way, the father of Angelina Jolie. Uh, That's all and, he's done. That's Right. He produced Angelina Jolie is what you need to know. Thank but, you for but, that. But he's also, unfortunately, a film legend was in Midnight Cowboy won an Oscar for Coming Home, which means he won an Oscar for a movie co-starring Jane Fonda, which is the cruelest fate ever. Uh, and Jane, of course, won for that, too. But anyway. By he, the way, Jane Fonda was um, the reason I lost a trivia round last night. I can't believe I have to strangle you on air. Well, you had to you had to list actors or actresses who have won Best Actor or Best Actress who also have a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. And I confused Jane having handprints on the Walk of Fame with a star. Oh, the Uh, Chinese theater. Yeah, because some celebrities have their name and the handprint, but Mm -hmm. they don't have an actual star. Oh, but she does have a star. Oh, no, but does Sally have a star and she appeared for... Yeah. Because she's been with Sally Field. When I Googled Jane Fonda Hollywood star, she's shown up at many celebrities' star unveilings but right. she does not have one herself wow the, the degradation um uh anyway so john voight just released a psa being like we have to support our president and a couple of things <laughs> came to mind um one this man is jockeying to play donald trump they, they they frankly just look alike and he would do this and he has given us a a, a bullshit impression before he was nominated for that movie ali playing howard cosell what a crock of shit and secondly we just need to stop paying attention to uh, certain completely out of touch white. I mean, Angelina Jolie will tell you herself, don't listen to my father. So that's all we need to say about that. But anyway, he's uh, just the worst. Why listen to him? And yet we did. He was trending all weekend. So that's why, enough. like, who cares? Right. About John, like, who's like, oh, John Boyd said so. I assume the people that were thrilled by the Clint Eastwood chair situation. When are we getting that movie, by the way? Clint <laughs> Eastwood just, and The Chair. It honestly just feels like these <laughs> old men, I don't know how the brains are doing. The older <laughs> you get, you just got, it's not their fault. Like it's when you get old. Yeah, atrophy. Yeah, it's just what happens. And it just feels like no one is stopping them. No one's like, come on, John. Why don't you go see if your grandkids will talk to you this week? <laughs> <laughs> because you know those kids are like... Mom, who's that? She's like, eh. <laughs> also, yeah. them along with um, notorious creep uh, James Woods. Uh, oh, yeah. They just Another see... brilliant actor, unfortunately. Yeah, well, not anymore. Yeah, no. I I, feel I, like. yeah. Salvador I, is what I mean, not yeah. now. Um, th- I feel like there was a slew of men um, and some women in Hollywood throughout like the 60s, 70s. They were great actors, obviously, but... We didn't really talk about politics like 
of celebrities in the news and the media. So they probably just like annoyed people at parties right. um, talking about their politics. On set, yeah. they're like, oh, yeah. he's got it. Being like, oh, do you really think Nixon should be resigning? Fuck them Democrats. John, John loves the <laughs> Vietnam War, guys. He's like all for it. But now that we know and now that they have access to recording videos or um, tweeting. Now we know like how trash they've always been. Right. And if they can get that retweet from Chuck Woolery, they're going to do it. And they are excited to talk about it with other people who they feel like support them now. So the real problem is we just need to make them all go back in the closet as Republicans. Who it's gave them nice. a Twitter? What, what, what person under the age of 35 took the job of, of yeah. facilitating John Voight's Twitter. Right. Because we know that like young gays tweet for most of these um, people like Dionne Warwick, who was had a, her fight. Uh, oh, yeah. Dionne Warwick, when she suddenly gained the ability to post very deep memes, I was like, <laughs> I don't know what's happening here. Talking about Beyonce, uh, how she's not an icon yet. And then responding to everyone on Twitter who was agreeing with her. Um, and like she sent me a gif, um, Nick Kroll um, um, in his publicity. Uh, um, get up um, that sketch and so I was like some gay is running this account no and so I want to know who is running the accounts of these old men is it like Charlie Kirk oh that's a good question I mean judging based on the, the grammar alone it might be them so okay. I don't know wow Kara what is your keep it this week well since I missed the positive keep it moment Mm -hmm. Um, and in the spirit of Lewis's, I just, he really just wants to talk about so many likes. The gymnastics to get to it. I'm going to do something like that, which is to anyone who hasn't yet watched Fleabag season two, mm -hmm. which is six perfect episodes of television. Phoebe Waller-Bridge is a literal genius. This word is often used genius, brilliant words that are thrown around much too frequently just for the state of any, anything. Not that much shit is brilliant, guys. Do you know what that word means? It's a rare, rare usage. But uh, I think we often use it to talk about men who just make, you know, male characters who are like brooding and whatever the fuck, but are terrible people. And they call it an antihero. And suddenly that seems important. It's Phoebe called the entire 1970s right. film. Yes. Phoebe Waller-Bridge is an actual genius. Fleabag is actually brilliant. Um, it's like the these characters and the relationships they're looking at and like between sisters and between she fucking falls in love with a priest, guys. Like, come on. Everyone is talking about the hot priest on the Internet. Yeah, Scott. it's and it's also just like a really it's just like it's such a great love story, which doesn't make any sense. Like if you were like, hey, you're going to really you're going to get in deep with this like this badly behaving woman and a priest. I'd be like, no, I'm not. Mm. <laughs> but well, here I am. I've seen the Thornbirds, so Ooh. maybe so. Uh <laughs> Love me some Stanwyck. Also, I mean, after this show, I almost think they have to retire breaking the fourth wall altogether because she is so amazing at And it. they do something incredible with breaking the fourth wall at the end of the series um, that I will not spoil for you. And it's just so smart. And and the other thing is the actual restraint, like I, with, I love a lot of British television and it's really frustrating sometimes when there's four or six episodes or just you want more. Um, but this was something where it is so tight. It is so perfect. It's 12 episodes. And she's like, I'm not doing a third season. I absolutely don't think she should. Like she created something that just like, 
that's what it is. Um, I feel the same way with like Russian Doll, where mm-hmm. I was like, oh, that was perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for as much as like with TV now, you're like, oh, these short orders and you want more. Like sometimes people take that and say like, I'm going to create for the medium and I'm going to make a story that is perfect for six episodes or perfect for 12 episodes. Um, and I thought she really did that well. And it's so good. And it's I'm so good. Uh, uh, on along those lines, I am afraid for the new Big Little Lies. Like it could have just ended there. Yeah, we would have been great. Yeah, <laughs> you know? it's it. It's just not every story. The thing is, you kind of have to know from the beginning. Like, if you start a story and it's like, oh, we've we've unfolded it in 10 episodes. Now give us 10 more. That's hard as opposed to like, hey, by the way, you're going to keep this going for five seasons. You obviously go in and start setting up the story that way. So I think it's also just not the way that writers write. Mm-hmm. Like, I think if you're if you're coming up with the story, you're either thinking of something complete um, and you're writing a movie or whatever it is um, or or you're leaving things open. And so to just sort of like change your mind halfway through is weird. And it mm-hmm. does not. As we've seen. It does not always work out. You know, the only thing I think that needs to be 60 plus episodes is Love Island, which is back this summer. <laughs> there you go. Well, aren't there like 600 <laughs> episodes, period? It airs every night. Oh, my God. And it is coming no, back. Like seven days a week or on weekends too or six five? Days, six days a week, five days a week. And then there's a recap episode oh. on the weekend in case you miss the week. Of course you miss the week. It's every fucking day. But that is coming back this June um, to the UK. But also, I believe in the same week, CBS's version of Love Island is debuting. And that's going to be on. It's going to be every day. Julie Chen hosting. (laughs) I don't know who's hosting it. I don't think they've announced it. Okay. But yeah. So it's going to be a lot of Love Island this summer. I can't imagine watching a recap episode of a five episode a week <laughs> show. <laughs> well, I never watch the recap episodes because I just breeze. Why wouldn't you just ones. watch the recap? Episode? Oh, yeah. Or just that. Yeah. Well, I mean, then you miss all the banter. Okay. Can they recap all the time you didn't spend with your family? How about that? Mm-hmm. Uh, Talking about values now. I have no family. Okay. You know <laughs> that they were murdered by John Voigt. <laughs> <laughs> um... My keep it this week is to Utah County Commissioner Nathan <laughs> Ivey. Okay. He's always up in my yeah, business. Said, <laughs> He's County Commissioner. I don't even know what that is. He is always trying to steal monuments. Uh, <laughs> Carmen San Diego is shook. Uh, now he is a Mormon Republican lawmaker who came out this week. Um, I'm gay. I love when that happened, used to happen on People Magazine um, or Time, you know, Ellen and Lance Bass. Yeah, Lance Bass. Um, Anyway, he's come out and basically he's just talking about how you can be part of the Church of Latter-day Saints and be gay and be Republican and it all works out. And I'm like... Shut the fuck up. If you like violently throwing <laughs> up every day. First of all, uh, he talks about struggling with knowing he was gay since he was nine. So I'm like, I mean, well, congrats on still becoming a Republican right. and supporting. Defiant. Right. You know, supporting a political party that hates, hates you. you. Um, and this is sort of that weird thing of like him trying to say, you know, I think that people always think it's as odds to be gay and Republican, but it's not. I'm like, I don't think it's as odds because there are a lot of evil gay Republicans um, like Peter Thiel um, right. or that Aaron Schock 
mm-hmm. um, who got away with committing crimes in Illinois and did not go to prison. Now he's terrorizing uh, Barry's boot camp in West Hollywood. Yeah, and just hanging out at the Standard, yep. um, leaking his nude photos all over the city, uh, mm-hmm. which he probably did on purpose, by the way. Oh, really? You know, it was just everyone was concerned this weekend about that um, Aaron Schock's nudes were leaking. And they were like, oh, my God, this must be so embarrassing to him. And I'm like, I would posit that he actually enjoys it. Wait, I, that's impossible. An insta looking gay enjoying spreading naked pictures. <laughs> himself, you're crazy. He's like, I won't make him sign up for an OnlyFans. I'll give it to all my fans. Uh. <laughs> uh, but no, I'm just sort of like the idea of this Mormon Republican from this church, which we've all seen Big Love. I don't know if they still do that, <laughs> but Jennifer Goodwin, come back to us. Your your church was up to no good. The Republicans are up to no good. Well, the thing the thing about this that I find so like uninteresting is it's not surprising when usually a white person is a part of a political group that doesn't have their best interest in mind. You look at all poor white people who are Republicans. They don't like you or care about you and are actively trying to hurt you. You look at white women who are Republicans like the bitch who signed the the heartbeat bill. It's like it's not surprising that this person who is either greedy or who is, you know, only looking out for themselves or whatever it is would be a part of two groups that don't like him. That's like. Yeah, man, there's a lot of people who do that shit. You're not special. You still suck. It's usually just that they hate some other group so much, so much that, that they, they want to yes. support it. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, and they think that they won't be attacked. And they think that being like, if they're able to marginalize other people, then their marginalization won't be paid as much attention to, or it makes them less marginalized. If like you're a white woman in a party and you can like step on black people, it makes you feel like you're less marginalized or you have some sort of power like this isn't this is not new psychology with these idiots and t he is a full grown ass adult who is still a republican so my reasoning or hypothesis of why he came out with this i'm gay video is that somebody knew and it was about to come out right Mm. right so let me get ahead of the story i think we can all agree there's a diversity of hypocrisy among white republicans and i'm glad (laughs) to see that representation finally yeah i'm glad it's in utah uh the only hypocrite we had from there for a minute was Mitt Romney. <laughs> uh, He's still, you know, anytime I remember that Mitt Romney went out there again, what is he, governor or senator? Senator. I mean, like, come on, man. You know, you went from losing to Obama. Um, Badly. Poor, very poorly. Um, and also teaming up with an even bigger loser, Paul Ryan. Uh, and uh, <laughs> then coming out against Donald Trump. Then having dinner with Donald That's Trump. That's my favorite photo. Bend the knee. Him like caught in the headlights <laughs> with his little knife and fork. Like they just caught him is so funny and is so. I don't think he realizes how embarrassing it is for him, which sort of takes away a little bit of the joy. But I'm like, you could not look more spineless. And I love it. And mm. you've been caught. Well, what I love about this Nathan Ivy person now That's is. His name? Yeah, is okay. that I feel like. Some Republican is going to be like, cool, you've got Pete Buttigieg out here. You know, the Democrats are trying to be like, we can have a gay um, person who's very prominent in the party now. I feel like 
Nathan is now going to become that Mitt Romney. Someone's going to pull him into like what is he having like? to compromise himself even further just because they're like, oh, we can put a gay Republican out there in right. the forefront. And he's I don't the know. city commissioner. I feel he probably is wants that what more. It was? He probably wants I more. <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry. <laughs> civics teachers around the country. I don't know what the fuck a city commissioner is. is like it's not of, mayor. I know that. This is like one of the actual occasions where I actually think sexuality doesn't matter. It's like, oh, you suck. That's where the story ends. Yeah, and you're not interested like, in, in any other way. Yeah. Nothing about these dummies is interesting. And it's annoying that they think it's interesting. Like he thinks now... Like, oh, you're shitty, like a bunch of other people are shitty. Right. No, he's like, I'm horrible, but I also can cook. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, commissioners basically just like control, like, you know, general stuff in the city, like taxes, How can and he... ordinances. So what city? Well, he can't be the city commissioner of Utah. So he's the city commissioner of... Utah County. What? <laughs> <laughs> I bet that's one of the prominent counties in Utah. Where's, where's Tommy? <laughs> Tommy, I need some flashcards because I don't know what any of this stuff is. Uh, I've also never been to Utah, so I don't. Where is Pod Save Utah? So yeah. I can figure out what the fuck is going on in this city. Anyway, he sucks. Gay Republicans suck. Aaron Shock sucks. Everyone sucks. We did it. That's it. Because <laughs> we're back to being negative again. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again to Kyle Buchanan for joining us. We'll see you next week. chocolate treats mixed into dark chocolate ice cream, the Tillamook Chocolate Collection is a chocolate game changer because the thing that pairs best with chocolate is more chocolate. Tillamook Chocolate Collection Ice Cream. Extraordinary dairy. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. 